Section six of the Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Scott, Cheltenham, England. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. Four John Donne. Part three. His married life, however, in spite of a succession of miseries due to ill-health, debt, and thwarted ambition, seems to have been happy beyond prophecy. And when, at the end of sixteen years, his wife died in childbed, after having borne him twelve children, a religious crisis resulted that turned his conventional churchmanship into sanctity. His original change from Catholicism to Protestantism has been already mentioned most of the authorities are agreed however that this was a conversion in a formal rather than in a spiritual sense even when he took holy orders in sixteen fifteen at the age of forty-two he appears to have done so less in answer to any impulse to a religious life from within than because with the downfall of somerset all hope of advancement through his legal attainments was brought to an end undoubtedly as far back as sixteen twelve he had thought of entering the church but we find him at the end of 1613 writing an epithalamium for the murderers of Sir Thomas Overbury. It is a curious fact that three great poets, Dunn, Ben Jonson, and Campion, appear, though innocently enough, in the story of the Countess of Essex's sordid crime. Dunn's temper at the time is still clearly that of a man of the world. His jest at the expense of Sir Walter Raleigh, then in the Tower, is the jest of an ungenerous worldling. Even after his admission into the church, he reveals himself as ungenerously morose when the Countess of Bedford, in trouble about her own extravagances, can afford him no more than thirty pounds to pay his debts. The truth is, to be forty and a failure is an affliction that might sour even a healthy nature. The effect on a man of Dunn's ambitious and melancholy temperament together with the memory of his dissipated health and his dissipated fortune and the spectacle of a long family in constant process of increase must have been disastrous to such a man poverty and neglected merit are a prison as they were to swift one thinks of each of them as a lion in a cage ever growing less and less patient of his bars Shakespeare and Shelley had in them some volatile element that could, one feels, have escaped through the bars and sung above the ground. Dunn and Swift were morbid men, suffering from claustrophobia. They were pent and imprisoned spirits, hating the walls that seemed to threaten to close in on them and crush them. In his poems and letters, Dunn is haunted especially by three images, the hospital, the prison, and the grave disease i think preyed on his mind even more terrifyingly than warped ambition put all the miseries that man is subject to together he exclaims in one of the passages in that luxuriant anthology that mr logan pearsall smith has made from the sermons sickness is more than all in poverty i lack but other things in banishment i lack but other men but in sickness i lack myself walton declares that it was from consumption that dunn suffered but he had probably the seeds of many diseases in some of his letters he dwells miserably on the symptoms of his illnesses at one time his sickness 
hath so much of a cramp that it rests the sinews so much of titane that it withdraws and pulls the mouth and so much of the gout that it is not like to be cured i shall he adds be in this world like a porter in a great house but seldomest abroad i shall have many things to make me weary and yet not get leave to be gone even after his conversion he felt drawn to a morbid insistence on the details of his ill health those amazing records which he wrote while lying ill in bed in october sixteen twenty three give us a realistic study of a sick bed and its circumstances the gloom of which is hardly even lightened by his odd account of the disappearance of his sense of taste my taste is not gone away but gone up to sit at david's table my stomach is not gone but gone upwards toward the supper of the lamb i am mine own ghost he cries and rather affright my beholders than interest them miserable and inhuman fortune when i must practise my lying in the grave by lying still it does not surprise one to learn that a man thus assailed by wretchedness and given to looking in the mirror of his own bodily corruptions was often tempted by a sickly inclination to commit suicide and that he even wrote though he did not dare to publish an apology for suicide on religious grounds his famous and little-read by athanatos the family crest of the duns was a sheaf of snakes and these symbolize well enough the brood of temptations that twisted about in this unfortunate christian's bosom dun in the days of his salvation abandoned the family crest for a new one christ crucified on an anchor but he might well have left the snakes writhing about the anchor he remained a tempted man to the end one wishes that the sermons threw more light on his later personal life than they do but perhaps that is too much to expect of sermons there is no form of literature less personal except a leading article the preacher usually regards himself as a mouthpiece rather than a man giving expression to himself in the circumstances what surprises us is that the sermons reveal not so little but so much of dunn indeed they make us feel far more intimate with dunn than do his private letters many of which are little more than exercises in composition as a preacher no less than as a poet he is inflamed by the creative heat he shows the same vehemence of fancy in the presence of the divine and infernal universe a vehemence that prevents even his most far-sought extravagances from disgusting us as do the lukewarm follies of the euphuists undoubtedly the modern reader smiles when dunn explaining that man can be an enemy of god as the mouse can be an enemy to the elephant goes on to speak of god who is not only a multiplied elephant millions of elephants multiplied into one but a multiplied world a multiplied all all that can be conceived by us infinite many times over nay if we may dare to say so a multiplied god a god that hath the millions of the heathens gods in himself alone but at the same time one finds oneself taking a serious pleasure in the huge so rites of quips and fancies in which he loves to present the divine argument nine out of ten readers of the sermons i imagine will be first attracted to them through love of the poems they need not be surprised if they do not immediately enjoy them 
the dust of the pulpit lies on them thickly enough as one goes on reading them however one becomes suddenly aware of their florid and exiled beauty one sees beyond their local theology to the passion of a great suffering artist here are sentences that express the paradise the purgatory and the hell of john donne's soul a noble imagination is at work a grave-digging imagination but also an imagination that is at home among the stars one can open mr pearsall smith's anthology almost at random and be sure of lighting on a passage which gives us a characteristic movement in the symphony of horror and hope that was Dunn's contribution to the art of prose. Listen to this, for example, from a sermon preached in St. Paul's in January 1626. Let me wither and wear out mine age in a discomfortable, in an unwholesome, in a penurious prison, and so pay my debts with my bones, and recompense the wastefulness of my youth with the beggary of mine age let me wither in a spittle under sharp and foul and infamous diseases and so recompense the wantonness of my youth with that loathsomeness in mine age yet if god withdraw not his spiritual blessings his grace his patience if i can call my suffering his doing my passion his action all this that is temporal is but a caterpillar got into one corner of my garden but a mildew fallen upon one acre of my corn. The body of all, the substance of all, is safe, so long as the soul is safe. The self-contempt with which his imagination loved to intoxicate itself finds more lavish expression in a passage in a sermon delivered on Easter Sunday two years later. When I consider what I was in my parents' loins, a substance unworthy of a word, unworthy of a thought, when I consider what I am now, a volume of diseases bound up together, a dry cinder if I look for natural, for radical moisture, and yet a sponge, a bottle of overflowing rooms if I consider accidental, an aged child, a grey-headed infant, and but the ghost of mine own youth, when I consider what I shall be at last, by the hand of death in my grave, first but putrefaction and not so much as putrefaction i shall not be able to send forth so much as ill air not any air at all but shall be all insipid tasteless savourless dust for a while all worms and after a while not so much as worms sordid senseless nameless dust when i consider the past and present and future state of this body in this world i am able to conceive able to express the worst that can befall it in nature and the worst that can be inflicted on it by man or fortune but the least degree of glory that god hath prepared for that body in heaven i am not able to express not able to conceive excerpts of great prose seldom give us that rounded and final beauty which we expect in a work of art and the reader of Dunn's sermons in their latest form will be wise if he comes to them expecting to find beauty piecemeal and tarnished though in profusion. He will be wise too not to expect too many passages of the same intimate kind as that famous confession in regard to prayer which Mr. Pearsall Smith quotes, and which no writer on Dunn can afford not to quote. I throw myself down in my chamber 
and i call in and invite god and his angels thither and when they are there i neglect god and his angels for the noise of a fly for the rattling of a coach for the whining of a door i talk on in the same posture of praying eyes lifted up knees bowed down as though i prayed to god and if god or his angels should ask me when i thought last of god in that prayer i cannot tell sometimes i find that i had forgot what i was about but when i began to forget it i cannot tell a memory of yesterday's pleasures a fear of tomorrow's dangers a straw under my knee a noise in mine ear a light in mine eye and anything a nothing a fancy a chimera in my brain troubles me in my prayer if donne had written much prose in this kind his sermons would be as famous as the writings of any of the saints since the days of the apostles even as it is there is no other elizabethan man of letters whose personality is an island with a crooked shore inviting us into a thousand bays and creeks and river mouths to the same degree as the personality that expressed itself in the poems sermons and life of john donne it is a mysterious and at times repellent island it lies only intermittently in the sun a fog hangs around its coast and at the base of its most radiant mountain tops there is as a rule a miasma infested swamp there are jewels to be found scattered among its rocks and over its surface and by miners in the dark it is richer indeed in jewels and precious metals and curious ornaments than in flowers the shepherd on the hillside seldom tells his tale uninterrupted strange rites in honour of ancient infernal deities that delight in death are practised in hidden places and the echo of these reaches him on the sighs of the wind and makes him shudder even as he looks at his beloved it is an island with a cemetery smell the chief figure who haunts it is a living man in a winding-sheet it is no doubt walton's story of the last days of donne's life that makes us as we read even the sermons and the love poems so aware of this ghostly apparition donne it will be remembered almost on the eve of his death dressed himself in a winding-sheet tied with knots at his head and feet and stood on a wooden urn with his eyes shut and with so much of the sheet turned aside as might show his lean pale and death-like face while a painter made a sketch of him for his funeral monument he then had the picture placed at his bedside to which he summoned his friends and servants in order to bid them farewell as he lay awaiting death he said characteristically i were miserable if i might not die and then repeatedly in a faint voice thy kingdom come thy will be done at the very end he lost his speech and as his soul ascended and his last breath departed from him he closed his eyes and then disposed his hands and body into such a posture as required not the least alteration by those that came to shroud him it was a strange chance that preserved his spectral monument almost uninjured when st paul's was burned down in the great fire and no other monument in the cathedral escaped among all his fantasies none remains in the imagination more despotically than this last fanciful game of dying donne however remained in all respects a fantastic to the last as we may see in that hymn which he wrote eight days before the end tricked out with queer geography and so anciently egoistic amid its worship 
as in the verse whilst my physicians by their love are grown cosmographers and i their map who lie flat on this bed that by them may be shown that this is my south-west discovery per fretum febris by these straits to die dun was the poet geographer of himself his mistresses and his god other poets of his time dived deeper and soared to greater altitudes but none travelled so far so curiously and in such out-of-the-way places now hurrying like a nervous fugitive and now in the exultation of the first man in a new-found land end of section six